Thank you for listening to the Modern Learners Podcast. I'm Missy Emler, your host. In this podcast, we explore topics in education through the Modern Learners lens. We dig into our beliefs about learning, the modern contexts that impact learning in schools, and the practices that create the conditions for learning to take place. No matter how hard we challenge the status quo or how hard we push your thinking, remember this, we're not asking you to change, we're asking you to learn. Now, let's get started. Today I speak with Dr. Lenny Scott Weber. She is a leader, leading thinker on the evolution of what we know about learning, the learner, and the learning space. Dr. Lenny has pioneered research strategies addressing how the built environment impacts student engagement factors and learner success. Dr. Lenny has served as the founding director of Education Environments at Steel Case and as a principal researcher for the DLR Group and VS America. This podcast will help you think about designing learning spaces from the inside out. As always, we'll be continuing this conversation in the Modern Learners community. Just head over to modernlearners.community and sign in or sign up. But for now, here's my conversation with Dr. Lenny Scott Weber. Welcome to the show, Lenny Scott Weber. We are extremely excited to have you on the Modern Learners podcast. Welcome. Well, thank you so much. I feel privileged to be invited. Absolutely. And I just have to say that my own personal study of places and spaces has really been um, amping up over the last, I would say, six months to a year. And I have always been the techie teacher and I've always supported schools with, you know, technology implementations. And I see a trend leaning towards the development and redevelopment of spaces and really upping the ante in those discussions. And that's what led me to your work. I also feel it's on a similar trajectory. I always think of technology as a conversation about access use and benefit. If we have access to amazing technology, that's one thing. But if we don't use it, then we definitely don't have any benefit. And I see space as a similar opportunity. So can you just start out by talking to us about the intersection of place, space, time, and technology? Well, for me, uh, as a former educator and a researcher of the built environment for education for many years. To me, I'm going to take two of those pieces. Mm -hmm. Technology and space to me are both tools. Yes. And when you design intentionally, whatever tool you're designing for, I think it's really important that you understand where the user is and how you might bring them along. We think about the new innovative environments for education, but very often the educator is sort of dropped into outer space in these new places. And, or as I I was just a keynote speaker for the Lower Hudson Valley, I say, what happens when my classroom goes away? How do I now navigate in these new opportunities 
whether it's my space or our space, it's still a tool and has a lot of different kinds of things working for it that should in fact make my job as an educator to support the learning experience easier and better. Yes, that reminds me of the four A's article that you just had published in yes. the Ed Spaces um, publication. And I think that's really interesting because Modern Learners is very focused on learner-centered education. And that article really emphasizes the importance of um, teachers and the workspace that schools are for them and the impact that space has on their fulfillment in their work. Well, it's my strong belief also as an interior designer and interior design educator that space makes a difference in the way we live, work, play, and heal. So we spend 90% of our life within a built structure. So hopefully there is a very qualified intentional design that is using research evidence and or empirical evidence to help to generate those decisions that designers do. And hopefully there's also more of a transdisciplinary approach to that because no one field of that is building these buildings knows it all. And I think it's really important that they reach out to all of the experts and, and the teachers and the students as well. But I want to pick up on something, if I may, that you said earlier that you're not sure that we've really remembered that education is about learning. Yes. It's interesting that you say that because for many, many years I've said I would like the word education to go out of our vocabulary because I don't believe that we're, that the current educational institution is about learning at all. It's about downloading information. That's not learning. And if we reframe that thinking about how do we want our children, our people, whether, so whether you're a little person or whether you're someone of my vintage that still tries to learn, it's what is that learning experience and how might I help that person an individual come to their fullest potential as they learn because we it's not one size fits all we don't we're not cookie cutters as human beings and so we shouldn't expect a cookie cutter support or solution absolutely will richardson the founder of one of the co-founders of modern learners always asks the question how do we believe children learn most powerfully and deeply. And I can tell you after we are going into our 10th cohort of one of our programs called Change School. And one of the questions we always start with is what do you mean by learning? Which comes from Seymour Saracen's book by the same title, What Do You Mean by Learning? And there is not a consensus. And there's not a consensus in schools or districts or even in the field. And while we don't have a specific answer about what learning is, we do encourage people to wrestle with what is learning. And that's a great question. And I, we might build on that by saying, how might we support a full learning experience? 
We have so much more knowledge today from cognitive neuroscience, and I try to follow that uh, vein in a couple of different ways. And what we do know is that learning is experienced. It is, and that means that if we think about from an educator's perspective, if you involve a, a learner's senses, that's precognition. That means that response is going to happen whether you're there or not. <laughs> so, and then what do we do with that in terms of working memory? So everyone takes in information from their sensory input somewhat differently, but there might be a strength in, in someone who's more visual. There might be a strength in someone who's more auditory, but we all need all of our senses. And it's not just the five senses. We also have all our muscular senses, and there's 600 plus of those. We also have our inner ear, our balance senses. So when you think about how do I get to that learner, there's lots of different ways that you can provide an experience if you're the facilitator or the educator, as we call them today. But if you think about how might I get at some of these sensory things, to help people actually take it in and begin then to own it, we have to use our bodies in all different ways in order to have that deeper learning. And that's what we really refer to sort of as active learning. Active meaning not just participatory, but literally moving and having uh, the permission to move around and do what I need to do, use the room as a tool in order to make the space. So when you walk into a classroom, if there's still a classroom, and you have row by column seating, there are two pre-behavioral uh, aspects that are preconditioned. One is, as an educator, I know I'm there to stand and deliver. There's gonna be one end of a room that's going to support my presentation. I'm gonna have about a quarter of the room that's gonna be mine and everybody else is gonna be shoved in the other um, three quarters. And then I'm going to, the, the, if the student comes in, they know they're just gonna sit and get because you're too squished. Um, environment behavior psychology, which is what my PhD degree is in, had some early um, researchers in the late 60s, early 70s. Robert Sommer, S-O-N-M-E-R is one of them. And he talked about two ways to think about space as it relates to how we might want people to connect. One is called sociofugal, F-U-G-A-L, and that's more shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder learning. Try to say that three times. Shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder learning. And that means that if you want, if you say turn and talk, you're going to have to turn your whole body because the chairs or the tables are in the way. So the affordances within the space are not supporting you. You're seated. So again, you're twisting your torso. But if you have something he calls sociopedal, that's more everyone's facing to the center. You have eye contact. It's easy to connect. Two simple little things to think about. If we want people to stand and to be able to have postural changes, which is really hugely important, then don't have everybody have a seat. Have some places that are standing. Have, have some choice in how you might want to, to move around a room and utilize the different kinds of things that are there. 
I think one of the things that I challenge my colleagues in architecture is we're building a lot of spaces that have a lot of glass transparency, which on one level is really great. Certainly the glass to the outside for nature is critical. But when we only have glass for transparency, it's not as usable. So one simple thing is to how many times can we add um, writable surface so that we actually have permission to think out loud, to work as a small team, to just think things through on my own, however that is, uh, whiteboards, vertical surfaces to write on, have educators clear the way of all their stuff, which sometimes becomes visual noise right. and actually is very difficult to concentrate and focus on when you're busy trying to understand all that stuff. That's a really important place to actually then see how students are thinking. And then if you see them going down the wrong path, you can correct them in a heartbeat so that that wrong path doesn't get ingrained in the working memory and stuck there. Right. Have you, have you heard of Peter Liljedahl's work out of Canada? He is, um, he's done several years of research um, that he's sort of named thinking classrooms. Um, the research has been mostly in math classrooms. Okay. His work now is trying to measure the transferability of um, the concepts, the 14 principles of thinking classrooms. But we had him on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, and he talked about the importance of vertical, non-permanent writing surfaces as well for the purpose of collaboration, but also for the purpose of not hiding. And he says that, you know, when students uh, work within their notebook or um, other, other paper or writing surfaces that are just for themselves, they can hide. And again, like you said, the teacher can't see the visible thinking or the, the learning that's taking place before it's committed to memory, as you say. And so that his conversation would tie in perfectly. Mm -hmm. And he also said that a lot of times he recognized the principles before he had the research to define why the principles were so important. Um, but for the vertical non-permanent spaces, he says absolutely the most important reason to have them is so that kids can't hide. Well, I, I, I would say I'm not sure I would agree with him that it's the most important, but I think thinking out loud does several things. First of all, it connects with all of your sensory movements. It connects with your sense of balance. It connects with all your 600 muscles because you've got to stand there. And it also connects with your five senses because now you're, you're haptically writing with your hands. You've got a smell of transfer. So it connects on every level that we want to be able to have that learner be able to take that information in. And one of the things, uh, and if you need to take this out of the plug, that's okay. But in the research I did when I was leading um, the education environments for Steelcase Education, we actually developed personal whiteboards. Yeah. And a whole system Talk to me about verb. that. So the verb system was really to try to generate a full solution to give permission to both the educator and the learners to move it as needed. These personal whiteboards are small enough so that an individual or a small group of students can write on them 
And then they don't have to rewrite to present. They can stand to present where they are, or there's a little gizmo that you can put them on to stand, you know, in front of a room if you have to have that sort of group presentation. But when one of the things that happens when you're working together as a group, we don't have Hermione Gringle from, you know, um, what was that movie? Uh, J.K. Rowland's Harry Potter. Potter. <laughs> um, we don't have those people holding their hands up anymore. People are much more um, reticent about doing that. But when you ask students to work together, they're very accommodating. That gives them that social framework in order to be able to do that. So when you can think out loud together, that gives one person in charge of writing. All of the people are connecting and talking. So that's another layer of sensory input. And then what we found is it also puts the, puts the information into a contextual framework. So we visually frame somebody made a little drawing, somebody misspelled a word, whatever. Yeah, that's so important that I, I don't think I've thought about that, but that's really important because it does give you a place to see when you're remembering. Right. It, it puts that into that context. And in fact, there was research done. I'm not sure who the author was because I was still a, an, a, in my academic work, but there was actually research that said, if we take students out of the classroom, this is higher education now, and put them in a testing center, they won't test as well as when they stay in their contextual situation. So that is a direct link to being able to put things in context in order for our working memory. All it does is create patterns. That goes back to our neocortex. We had to look in the panorama to see the stripes that might be a target in the, in the grasslands in order to be able to know that we were safe. So we still do that. We're still in a primal mode. So all our brain does is make new patterns. So if we can help students or learners create these patterns in a contextual framework, that means that they can, you know, draw them back up when they need to. You got in that filing cabinet, you can go get it. <laughs> Absolutely. So I'm curious to know in all of your work with architecture and school leaders, what questions are school leaders not asking that would have significant impact on either the renovation, the redesign, or the creation of new spaces? Wow, that's a very, very powerful question. Um, and I'm not sure I'm the best person to answer that because I'm not at the front end of that. I'm in some of the visioning sessions as we go through, but I'm not in the pre-bond, for example, or mm -hmm. those kinds of things. Well, that's the question. Do yeah. people have the right conversations prior to the bond? I think they try to. I think there are a lot of really good, uh, well, so bond is only relative to K-12 right. education. It's not relative to And potentially ed. the U.S. as well. Yeah, potentially just the U.S. That's correct. I've, I've lived and worked in Canada and I don't remember ever having anything to do with bonds there, but mm -hmm. I could have just been not paying attention <laughs> as a young mom with trying to deal with five kids. No, mm -hmm. um, I think that one, I'm going to turn that on reverse. One of the things I don't think school leaders allow 
enough of is for their educators, students, and parents to be a part of the, the design team. Mm -hmm. I think those voices are critical. And when we've, we've actually gone into things as well, I don't want the educators to be a part of any of this. I just think that's foolish. And I think when you, a school, however, whatever cohort you're thinking about, you may have one opportunity in 50 to 100 years to build. Mm -hmm. That vision is being generated by that group of people. So who are the stewards? When that in, in K-12, a superintendent might leave that area every three years. Same might be a principal. Well, if the vision only rests with those two individuals, what do you think is going to happen to the place when they leave? If the vision isn't something that is bought into, just like most learning, if we don't own it, we don't believe in it, we don't, we don't support it, we don't... Um, advocate for it in, in the things that will need to happen in the next 50 years. And it's a big missed opportunity. And it's, I don't think it's fair to the community because I would also argue that from my framework of active learning, you can, if you have an active educator, you have active learning. I don't care what kind of a crappy environment they live in because they're amazing and they know if they just give the right um, input, learning takes off and you don't really have to teach anymore because the kids just, when they're given agency, they just take off. They, you might want to guide them to make sure they don't go down the wrong rabbit hole, but it's so beautiful to watch. You can't, you can never go back. Absolutely. And, I, and I hear that from educators I've worked with for a long time. Absolutely. And it's, I agree that the space doesn't need to be um, beautiful or new or anything. I've seen lots of amazing learning experiences in old spaces. But I do think that we, part of what's happening in education in the field, at least in K-12, is there's starting to be some opportunities because our buildings are aging out. Mm -hmm. um, to create new spaces that can right. really have an impact on the learning experience in school. But I think it's interesting that the other thing that you're sort of hinting at that I wonder if a direct question would help us get there, and that is, how do you see space impacting community identity? Oh, I think, um, <laughs> I think that's huge. Um, Every community, and maybe it's, it's hard to say, I live in the South, I live in Florida. And so it's just one community after the other. We don't, I don't say we have a community. It's just a megalopolis and we just go from one to the other. So community ha might have different meaning to different areas of the country and different areas of the world. When you have a um, smaller community, I think it's really important to use the resources wisely. And that could mean that it can be a useful new building for the community in many, many different ways. Why do we build a library for the city and we 
build a library at the high school? Like, why, why can't we take a more European approach to, to being more thoughtful about how we use the resources? So I think building community, certainly a new school always provides a sense of pride and the people that are, are able to use it. But I think certainly in the U.S., as I go up and down and all over, the larger the city, the less community is being built, one could argue. Um, but it doesn't mean that there still isn't a sense of pride. Particularly, and I think there's a missing link here. If you were really to use those resources and involve the community so that it becomes a place where I can go if I, want a, if I want a library or a place where I can go for entertainment or a place I can go and work out because the track is amazing and I'm allowed as well. We have to balance that with school safety. I recognize that. But at the same time, I don't think we're thinking holistically. The important thing to think about, I think, in designing any new educational facility is if we all got on the same page to ask the question that you sort of started with earlier is what should the learning experience be for all people who are in this facility? I'm just not talking about the students. As an educator, I have to continue to learn. I, I'm, these places, if I don't have a classroom, I now have to learn how to co-teach or team teach. Where does all my stuff go? How do I... How do I, um, how do we develop new curricula? What, where's our war room for all this stuff to go on? In dealing with higher education as an interior design faculty member, we had four hours of studio. It's perfect because it's inquiry-based, it's problem-based, project-based, it's everything you want. But it also means that you have to archive a lot of the student work. Where does all that stuff go? I can't put that in my office if I had one. Right. So there's this whole sense, that's why I talked about the three A's for the educator. Wherever you are on this continuum of teaching, if you espouse that you really want it to be all about learning, you still have stuff. You know, it, that stuff hasn't gone away. <laughs> so thinking about that is important. Well, and you have to be able to use that stuff at various times. And depending on the content area that you're designing instruction around, you, you need different things. Um, the other thing, I want to go back to the community piece for a second. I am in a small rural community in southwest Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. We have one K-12 building uh, with, you know, 400 students. Um, in that entire district. And when you speak of the opportunities to build a library um, and share the space with the community and the school, and again, yes, there's definitely safety concerns to be aware of. But I think that it can, that's just a design challenge oh, that yeah. can be, it it can be, used, can be, be done. Yeah. Absolutely be done. But the other, the other thing that our community has talked about um, is the notion of the Fab Lab or the makerspace or the STEM area. And one of the people that I've been talking with about that, he talks about having an ABC uh, STEM lab or makerspace. And then the A is academic, the B is the business community, and then the C is the community. And so 
um, when he talks with communities about building a STEM or a makerspace fab lab area, he, he often asks the question, do you want an A lab, a B lab, or an ABC lab? And I have this dream that we will design spaces in schools that meet the academic needs, meet the business needs of the local community, as well as meet the community's needs all in one space together. And I just imagine the innovation that would happen when you put all of those people in this creative, energetic space, what could come out and what that would mean for those local communities. I couldn't agree with you more. I think these terms are trends. And I think they're an from some of the design responses I've seen, they're a waste, huge waste of resources because they build it, they think they'll come, they don't have a, an educator or a professional that can actually run them if they're highly you know, specialized machinery. I think every space should be a maker space, a tinker space. If you go back and say, how do I want my students to learn? These are just extra tools in the room. They're just extra tools in the space. It doesn't have to be one or the other. Some are more specialized, you could argue, with maybe science labs or things like that. But even today, you go into science labs, they don't have to have the hoods anymore. They don't have to have the water anymore. You know, you, the world has changed so much. When we think of maker spaces in my world, that was home ec and shop. Right. How many of those spaces have gone away to resurface? So this is just a pendulum swing. It's called something different. But I think every space should be a learning studio. And you generate yeah, a studio. Can you define what a learning studio is? Well, in my world, um, from a studio perspective, I think you have an array of different kinds of, of tools, but simple, because you want the students to invent. So you have all kinds of you know, stuff that might be there from toilet paper rolls to paper towel to, you know, a, a, a swizzle sticks or whatever. Or there could be, you know, a small area for 3D printing since that's the newest buzz. I think you have to think about when I, if I'm teaching math, for example, how might physical things in this studio help my students see math. If, if they can't see it, if they only hear it, you know, how, how might I help them really think through this? Could we actually do a, and, and I, I personally think that content specific areas need to go away. I don't think they yes. fit anymore. I think we have to really connect and do transdisciplinary projects so that let's say there was a, an article that I read recently an educator was doing a crime scene. So it involved the math, it involved the geometry, it involved the social and emotional well-being of you know, the different people involved in the process. And they also had to map it out. So they physically had to put everything in this studio in order to see it. So you're, it's a visceral experience. It's when you include all of your sensory items, you can't help but put it into a pattern that you're gonna be able to recall. So again, if we think about what is the learning experience, no matter the content, it's in some kind of studio that we have longer hours. It's not a drill to kill. That, that's, 
we have a systemic problem in the, in this country in that, and in to some degree Canada as well, two countries I know about that, you know, it's, we're still on the factory model. We have to break the factory model because we don't learn that way. We have to learn in longer periods of time. We have to learn in different settings. We have to experience it in different ways, ways that sometimes are uncomfortable. In fact, if we get things that are uncomfortable in their, let's say, where they're squishy or they're, you know, they've got some yuck to it or something, mm-hmm. we actually, again, it's that visceral connection to the learning process that makes us start to, you know, maybe ask different questions, maybe ask better questions. And when you're an educator and you start to facilitate that, you really start to see how, how kids really start to bloom and become more comfortable with their own way of asking questions. And to me, that's what success builds on. Yes. I'm so glad you started to talk about the limitations that time contribute to space. You know, we, time is another tool and we have a hard time maximizing what can happen in our new spaces if we continue with our old time schedules and matrices. And if we don't start to rethink the design structure of the schedule and the timetable, it won't matter how beautiful and spacious our new spaces are because without reimagining the way we use our time, the space won't have the power to really make the necessary changes it needs to or has the potential to. No question about that. Like I said, it's systemic. And in my first book in 2004 on this subject, I talk about it as not only the factory model, but the agrarian model. You know, we still go from basically eight to three. Well, that was all based on kids being able to get home to do their chores on the ranch before sun went down. Mm-hmm. We still don't, don't have school in the summer. Why? We have mm-hmm. most parents both working. Why wouldn't you want to be able to have your kids in school and not worry about them? What are they or, doing? Or if your kids are growing up on the farm, why not credit them for the work they're going to do on the farm? Oh, Having, that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's so much in that. That is a reference to the, the podcast we just did last week with Tom Vander Ark and the power of place and yeah. looking at the ecology and the economy and the culture of the local communities that we live in and work in. And right. there's so much to be gained from those experiences. But in our systemic school system, we discredit those experiences um, and we don't, we don't sort of align them with learning, even right. though and they are. Yeah. That's what the MOOCs were all about for higher education. And it became this badge system. Well, you're dealing with economics. And so this is turf war that starts to happen with, I'm the university and I'm not going to give you credit if you're not coming to my university. And so it's, it's an economic battle. That's, that's why it's systemic. Um, I think those things are all really important that we think through the whole experience from one end to the other we don't need the 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 hardest thing i face when i talk to a lot of people is a lot of faculty are still in the way of learning yes they want 
they don't want to get out of their comfort zone. And to some degree, I understand, but in another way, every 26 minutes in this country, a child drops out of high school. It's not okay to keep going the way we've gone before. We don't need uh, a transfer. We don't need an evolution. You know, that we're going to go through this slowly. No, we need a leap. We do. We need, we need to just say this crap didn't work anymore. <laughs> you know, we're, we're survivors. Right. We're survivors. Those that have gone through and sort of checked the box. Now we need to really. Move it's not somewhere. working. It's not working anymore. Not because of anything other than there's different expectations. The, the learners have yeah. different expectations. They want to experience something different than what they're experiencing. And a lot of our learners are speaking with their feet and um, their behavior, right? They're, they're, they're telling us what they need. We just have to be willing to listen. Well, and it's interesting that you say they're telling us with their feet or their behavior, I would add, because... Yeah. My focus is on student academic engagement and how the built environment impacts that either positively or negatively. And as an educator, when someone is disengaged, the disruption behavior ratchets up. So it's very simple to say, you know what, as an educator, the more you engage your students in what they're doing, the less disruption you'll have in your classroom. Hello. It's a real simple, that is a causal statement. Yes. And if the room is squashed and you've got too many people in one spot, you can't possibly manage that, even if you're not being using a didactic approach to right. learning. If you're trying to, the, space matters. The amount of space we need as people are, are different. And we have to be able to move in order to learn. So if I'm sitting there all day, I'm going to be. I'm bored out of my mind. What are you going to be as a, as a kid right. that needs to move? Right. It's too important. I have one more line of questioning that's a little bit different than where we are, but okay. I think it's really important for our school leaders. And that's going back to the economy that we were talking about and potentially the, the economic impact of building a new building or planning for a new space or at least the renovation and something I've experienced is we, I've seen districts build amazing buildings and then the part that they essentially skimp on is the interior design or they pull back <laughs> on interior design because, you know, they only buy two of something that they might need more of. And I, there's a, there's an element of experimenting with the actual interior components, right? Like do, do the students like this type of seating or do they like this type of seating, that kind of thing. But I have, I do have a concern that we kind of design it and we build like the building part, but then the inside, um, I wonder if we skimp on. And maybe that's not a real experience that over your lots of, you have lots more of experience in this. So can you speak to like the economic things behind building a building? Like what are people thinking about? Well, the short answer to your question is yes. Um, it gets left out. Um, it gets left out because 
they've overspent on the architecture. So it gets quote unquote value engineered. Um, at times there's not a value from the architectural perspective of the interior design knowledge. There's five years of difference in education and having taught at several institutions, I can argue that it's a very different education. It should be valued just like engineering is valued. And it's not about, do I like that chair? That's where we miss the boat. The interior design perspective should be all about how do I support the kind of learning engagement that I want and what is the best way to do it with the affordances that are there? Give, if you say you want multiple, I want simultaneous multimodal teaching opportunities to happen in a learning studio. That means I'm gonna have a proportion of things that are gonna have no chairs, things that are gonna have stand-up areas, things that are gonna have vertical writing surfaces, things that I'm gonna be able to lay down on the floor on. Whatever that is, those solutions should be provided from knowledge, not because I like it. Mm -hmm. The like it needs to go away. And very often it's left to purchasing or it's left to facilities folks who say, well, this is the way we've always done it. So this is the way we're always gonna do it again. And that's all wrong. It doesn't address the need. In fact, the building should be built, in my view, from the need out, not the out in. Ooh, and, talk about that a little bit more. Well, if you really are understanding the full scale of what happens, let's say, in a, in a high school, grades in our country, 9 to 12, you know, there are lots of social and emotional learning needs that are happening there. There are, at many times, there's a lot of issues that students are dealing with from home. The community issues are, are challenging. Um, home issues are challenging. Um, the educator might have some of the same challenges. And so how do you create spaces that support the optimal means to learn? And that, that understanding should come from what do we need from these kinds of spaces that might be small and and accommodating certain kinds of things to this one. And then architecturally and from the interiors and, and engineering, a transdisciplinary approach to thinking about the design of these new buildings. That all comes together in what the footprint of this thing, the transition between this kind of experience to this kind of experience might look like. And then you start to build from the inside out. That to me makes sense. It's yes. never made any sense to me. If you want a huge tower, to be built, that's sort of what I call big A, you know, some architectural firm wants the credit for that big building. They don't care what each of the floor does. It's not about the experience of the interior, it's about the wow factor of looking at this building in the skyline. It's a very different thinking. Schools and healthcare and homes, perhaps even hospitality, really should be built from what is the experience out. And then we, then we take our, our collective knowledge and build with research evidence and, and smart information on, on what, what that place can afford others to be able to, to do long-term. And then also what that means is those people that are the community members that are a part of the thinking about this 
get buy-in because they understand what's going on. They understand the why. If we don't understand the why are we doing this, we're just building another new school. Okay, here's a blueprint box. Let's go. Cheap and dirty. But if you want the community, to your point earlier, and the economics to support, then we have to think about zoning as well. Can we zone for, let's say, um, an interactive area, a learning commons, uh, whatever the community may need? Why can't that be part of the footprint? Why do we have to zone it out? So only certain things are allowed in certain areas. I think having studied in different parts of of Europe, I think, again, that's another part of the systemic piece that we don't fit. But designing from the inside out, really understanding what the user's needs are from all cohorts, all perspectives of that learning continuum are really critical because teachers are being burned out and it's really hard. And unless we can get the connections to work and space impacts our behavior, and it gives us permission to act in certain ways. So we have to understand what those building cues are and make them perhaps a bit more universal for our, our language and literacy and understanding of what they do. This has been fascinating. So <laughs> do you want another you. soapbox? <laughs> <laughs> your, your soapbox is so welcomed in our modern learners community, I assure you. Um, there's just so much opportunity and we just want people to take the amount of time that's needed to really have these conversations. And we actually believe that like technology, space could be one of those opportunities to really reimagine Absolutely. what learning in schools can be and could be, but we can't miss the opportunity like we did with, to some extent with tech, right? Yeah. Um, we have to, we have to get, we have to at some point realize that we have to really ask the hard questions about learning that will inform space design and technology implementation and all of those tools but we have to first see it as a tool and as an important tool to what can be. And that it, it will impact us. Yes. I think when we realize that it does impact us, then we start to ask the not, question. Right. That impact might not be immediate on the next year's test scores, mm-mm, mm-mm. but it's a deeper impact. It's an impact on the community's identity. Yeah. And that's an internal community first and an external community second yeah yes for sure yeah well you ask good questions thank you for having thank you absolutely absolutely (laughs) oh i'm so excited have a great day (laughs) you too dear take good care thanks for listening to my conversation with dr lenny scott weber you can get all the show notes at modernlearners.com slash lenny scott weber If you're thinking about renovating an existing space or designing a new one, please consider these suggestions from Dr. Lenny. One, include students and teachers on your design team. Two, design from the inside out. And three, design with intention and rely on the best evidence-based research when making decisions. Finally, remember that the best designs start with getting clear about our beliefs about learning. Once we have clarity on that, our designs will be more likely 
to meet our needs. Thanks again for listening. I hope to continue the conversation in modernlearners.community. Be sure to sign up or sign in.